All right, so you've come here, you've watched the amazing video by Nate. Um, and the cool thing about the video is we've played it at the beginning of, of service, you know, since the series started, but today we played it right before the message because that video is actually about this parable. Um, so that's kind of a cool thing. And so I feel like, you know, I've gotten the, 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 seat, the seat of honor, so to speak. But um, I want to recap a few things um, that, that Pastor Ryan has talked about over the course of the series before we dig into the new stuff. And he's been talking about what the kingdom of heaven is. Not just what it's like, but what the kingdom of heaven is. And there's four things that he specifically kind of has been rolling through the series. The first thing is the kingdom is something that's coming in the future. It's the culmination of history. The second thing, the kingdom is something that's here and it's now and it's living in Jesus' followers. I feel like I'm echoing a lot too. Is that the case? No? All right. Um, the kingdom is what it looks like whenever and wherever people, people follow God's will. And the fourth thing, the kingdom is a way of referring to how the king operates. It's how and when God handles things. Um, I may or may not loop back around to those. Ryan said, you know, please mention them. So I figured I'd just do it right here and up front. I may come back to them. I have authority issues. I don't always do what I'm asked to do. So I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, but I figured I'd at least say, hey, we did it once, right? So anyways, we're in Matthew 13 today. So if you have them, bring out your Bibles. If you use your phone, you know, use that. We're going to have the text on the screen, uh, but nobody here is tall enough to climb up there and highlight or mark it up. Um, so I prefer that you bring out your own Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and want one, just raise your hand. And Jim, who's over there, he'll give you one. He'll put one in your hand, and you can consider that a gift. You can take it home with you. So if you want your own Bible, if you don't have one, please. Jim wants to give all those away. Um, if there's anything else in the church that you want, take it. All right? <laughs> I am really feeling generous today, um, so whatever there is, just take it, and also that'll make it a lot easier when we move. We don't have to bring as much, um, so trust me, it's okay, do that. Uh, so the parables we're going to look at today, though, we're going to look at two different parables, two, apparently, uh, two different parables, and, and they're interesting in that they, they look really similar on the surface. When you first read them, when you look at them, they look, they look alike, um, and the, there's two ways of looking at these parables. You know, we can... We can interpret them in one way, which is kind of like super sneaky, like you don't see it coming. But when you read into what it says, it's like, wow, it's like, boom, it hits you, because that's what the kingdom does. The kingdom goes, boom. I love that. All right, but another way, it's, there's also a way to look at these and a way to interpret these. It's just kind of right in front of you. It's, it's right in front of your face. As you're reading it, you really can't miss it. And so we're going to look at both of those. And, and, and I just love this stuff because of that. I mean, you can... You can say I'm right, you can say I'm wrong, you can decide what you want. You might think I'm nuts by the end of the day. I don't really care, um, to be honest with you. That's a neat thing about this. So I'm going to come up here, I'm going to tell you what these mean, and you get to see if I'm full of it or not. But that requires you to go home and read and study, which I guess is kind of my point. But anyways, Matthew 13, we're going to start at verse 44. There's a heckler in the back row. You may or may not be mine. All right. The kingdom of heaven is like, a, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. All right. I want to start with like the sneaky interpretation for this. All right. We look at the, the Old Testament symbolism used in this parable. All right. What, what does the field represent? What's that? The world. The, world. the field represents the world. All right, Ray, I'm going to ask another question. You're not going to answer it. What does the treasure represent? The 
No. What's the treasure represent? Jesus is the kingdom. No. Israel. The treasure is Israel. See, Israel was placed into the world to bring God glory, but it failed. It became a nation hidden, a treasure not being invested to produce dividends for God, which is much like a buried talent, which is another parable for another time, and I don't want to cross too many lines there. The man here in this parable is Jesus Christ, who gave his all to purchase the whole world in order to save Israel and claim the treasure for himself. See, on the cross, Jesus died for the whole world. But in a, in a special way, he died for Israel. See, the nation suffered judgment and seeming destruction, but in God's sight, it is hidden and will be revealed again in glory. Now, if we look back in Scripture, we see that God sees Israel as his treasure, which will one day bring him glory. Sneaky, sneaky. The second parable we're going to look at is the pearl of great value, which is 46 or 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right, so much like the previous parable, all right, the pearl represents... Wrong, the church. Didn't see that coming, did you? The pearl represents the church. And anybody, if anybody, even in their heads, didn't say it out loud, guessed correctly, see Keith or Ryan about your prize. Something heavy. All right? Some people also say the pearl is Jesus Christ and his salvation. But to that, if you think that or if you've thought that, I have one question for you. How much did you pay to be saved? Because that's a rabbit hole you never want to go down. The pearl is the church. See, biblically, there's a line drawn between Jews and Gentiles and the church. The church is a unity of both of those. Such as a pearl, same as a pearl, is a unity of, of different things coming together. Like the church, the pearl is a product of suffering. See, Christ died for the church and his suffering on the cross made possible its existence in the first place. The pearl grows slowly and gradually, and the church does the same. See, pearls, pearls are neat, and there might be some science people in here who know more, way more about this than I do, but I'll tell you just a little bit I do know about pearls. One, they're beautiful. I don't think anybody will deny that or argue that. Pearls are beautiful. But pearls grow as the result of a biological process. Irritants find their way into the shell of the oyster, and as a defense mechanism, the oyster then produces knacker, which is the same substance the shell is made of, and it covers the irritant to protect itself. And, and, and over time, more layers are added until we get a pearl. Just imagine, if you will, this is a pearl. I mean, people in this room could probably describe it better, but in a, in a nutshell, science happens, and we have pearls. And it happens so that the oyster can protect itself from foreign substances. See, the church grows as the Holy Spirit convicts and converts sinners. Basically, irritants enter her doors 
and they're covered up until they're pretty. I'm kind of kidding about that, but not really. See, the call of all Christians is to bear the likeness of God, to become Christ-like. Is it that much of a stretch to say that he covers us with what he is made of, just as the, just as the oyster does, until we're something beautiful? As the pearl is growing, no one can see it. It's hidden by the shell of the oyster underwater. As the church is growing, it's hidden among the nations. And you can look back biblically and scripturally and see that nations are typically represented by water. And one day, when God decrees, it will be revealed in its beauty. There's one church. It's a pearl of great value. There's, there's many other pearls. There's many other local churches. There's one that is Christ's church. And not everybody who's a member of the local church belongs to the church of Christ. It's only through repentance and faith in Christ that we become a part of the one church. So in spite of how Satan's working in the world, there's this pearl of great value that Christ is seeking and finding and calling to himself. There's his nation and his church that he's calling. He's forming his church. He's recalling his nation. He sold all that he had to purchase both. And nothing that Satan can do will cause him to fail. By the grace of God, we are included in that. So, who saw that coming? When we first looked at these parables. See, because typically what we do with the Bible is we read it in a modern context. My, my wife heard this said once, so I'm going to relay a story secondhand. She was talking to somebody about reading the Bible and what it's all about. And, and, and what was told to her was, imagine you know, you're out off the coast of Australia and you're swimming around around the Great Barrier Reef. You're just flipping around in the, you know, right above the waves and you're having the time of your life totally unaware of the beauty that lies just a few feet below you. As far as you're concerned, you're just having as much fun as you've ever had. It's a great time. You don't even care about what's below. But if you put on a mask and maybe strap some air tanks on, you're going to see things you've never thought possible. And, and I say that because typically we read the Bible on the surface. We don't look for pearls or treasure. We read it from a modern perspective. It's a more self-centered perspective, if you'll allow. Who's guilty of doing that? Wow, you guys are way more scholarly than I ever was. We do it. I'm not calling you out for it. I'm just calling attention to it. We read the Bible and we say, what does this mean to me? What, is, what does this scripture mean to me? What do these passages mean to me? And that's a really dangerous question. Because you can make this book say anything you want to if you read it from the viewpoint of, of what does this mean to me. And you can't ask the question, what does this mean to me, unless you first answer the question, what does this mean? Which we just covered. So now that we've done that, we can move into the me portion of today's message and read it in 2016. Starting again at 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has is that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right, so this is the, the in-your-face interpretation of this. This is the in-your-face way to read this because it's right there in front of us. If we look straight ahead, everybody do this because this is fun, especially for me. So I'm going to see all of you do it. Look straight ahead and then point your eyes in opposite directions. Can you do it? There's a trick to it. I can't do it with glasses on because everything gets wonky. But if you're, if you're looking straight, if you, if you focus on two things on opposite sides with your peripheral vision and then just basically let your eyes go, you let them relax and they'll just kind of drift to those things. So every, on three, everybody try it. I'm going to stare at Tim. Tim's going to try it. All right? Everybody does it. It's not just Tim. I'm, he's just right here. One, two, three, go. Okay, they drifted a little bit. All right? You can shake your head. It comes right back to normal. Trust me on that. I do this a lot. So anyways, and, and I do that because we have two things that are two things. Before two is here. Now two is here. Anyways, we, we, have, we have two things. Uh, that we have to look at as far as the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom is like, like treasure hidden in the field found by a man. All right, that's one. And then we have the kingdom is like a man looking for a fine pearl. So it's the treasure and it's the man. What? If we just read these kind of as a chunk, and oftentimes we hear these kind of the same thing, like, oh, the treasure and the pearl are the same. We don't split those apart because we'll read them as a lump. But what we have to look at is in both cases, everything is given so that something is gained. And this is where we bring our eyes back in from out here. We point them both at our nose. Um, can everybody do that for me real quick? Please, please, please. Everybody. Come on. Thank you, Dan. One person. One person. The treasure in the field teaches the supreme regard that we have to have for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, whichever you want to call it. And that whatever incident, accident, whatever opportunity leads to it, we should exercise everything within us to do everything we can to obtain it, even if it means selling everything we have. We have to realize that, that the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. It's a treasure surpassing all others in terms of riches or desirability. And the merchant teaches us, this is, this is great and this is little, and you'll remember this part. The merchant teaches us that we're to follow the directive given to us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of heaven is both within and without. And this is huge. If you take nothing else away, take this. We need to right now, in this moment, in our lives, recognize that the kingdom of heaven is so much more better, awesomer, and the amazingest thing ever. It's worth so much more than anything we currently have or anything we currently think we have. Think about it. The man in the field sees his treasure and he knows what he has is worth a pittance in comparison to the greatness in that field. So what does he do? He gladly gets rid of it. How shady or small of a view of the kingdom of heaven do we have that we hold on to stuff? That's a serious question. 
How small of a view of God do we have that we hold on to crap? Because when we look at the kingdom of heaven and compare it to what we have, that's exactly what it is. Y'all familiar with the word scubulon? That's biblical for crap, but it's a four-letter word that starts with an S. That's what it is. How small or slow of a view do we have of the kingdom of heaven that allows us or enable us to hold on to stuff? Now, I'm not calling you to sell everything you have or even to give anything up. That's not, that's not my job. That's not my responsibility, and I'd be way overstepping my role and my, my duty here to even suggest it. But what I am saying is that if we think, even for a second, that what we're holding on to is worth more than or is better than the kingdom, then we need to do some serious head and heart checks on how much value we ascribe to God in the first place. See, we live like gods, gods with a little g. Ignoring the God with a capital G because what we have and what we can do is so much better. We lie to ourselves. See, in regards to the merchant, he's seeking something fine. Something amazing. And when he finds it, he doesn't even consider it for a while. He doesn't hold it in his hand and go, huh. He runs off, sells everything he has, comes back and obtains it. There is no complacency. There's no hemming and hawing. There's no consideration. He just does because he gets it. Is that our attitude? As Christians, is this our attitude? If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you, so don't worry about it. But if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, does what I just said describe your life? First up, a couple things to look at. First off, as Christians, again, if you're not a Christian, don't worry about it. Yet, later, maybe. But as Christians, first off, what are we seeking? We have the merchant who's seeking a pearl of great value. We can, we can, we can think about that and, and understand and realize he's a jeweler. This is what the dude does. Like, you could probably put a number of us in a room together and put like a, 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 a lineup of pearls, and we'd all go, they're all beautiful. They wouldn't look different to us. But to a jeweler, they would know immediately which one was perfect, which one would be of great value. So when I say, do we know what we're seeking? Do we know what we're seeking and what it looks like in comparison to everything else out there? So as a Christian, what are we seeking? And if we're seeking the kingdom, what do our lives look like when we actually see it? Do we wait or do we run and do everything we can to pair up with it and be a part of it. I'm gonna bring this back. If you've ever heard me preach, you've probably heard me say this. Because this is one of those things now that's coming back in everything I do. This verse is kicking me right in the backside and in the chest and in the head and in the heart and everywhere. It's Romans 8, 15. Um, in the message version, which I don't normally read, but it's Romans 8, 15. It's this resurrection life that has been given us by God is not some timid grave-tending life. Instead, it is adventurously expectant, greeting God each day with a childlike, what's next, Papa? Do we do that? Or do we wait when it comes to kingdom stuff? In the case of the treasure, 
The kingdom is without. In the case of the merchant, the, tr the kingdom is within. It's what he seeks and how he runs after it. See, we get to decide those things. No one else. Let me tell you a little story. Um, starting in, in September of 2013, this is before Melissa and I moved up here. We were in Jacksonville. Um, we had I was I was I was on staff at a, at a church um, down in Jacksonville as a teaching pastor and a family pastor, um, and ministry was was going really well. Things were booming, um, but I, I sensed God's doing something. I don't know what it was. I couldn't put my finger on it. Other people were coming up to me like, what is God up to? Because I can feel it. We're like, well, I don't know, but it's big. And I just started praying, God, whatever it is, I'm in. I don't know what it looks like, God, but I'm in. Make it so. You know, and I was praying, God, is my assignment here over? And God showed me what's next because I just want a piece of it. And that was my prayer daily, hourly, by the minute. In September of 2013, my wife and I bought our dream house in Jacksonville. Four bedroom, three bath, two blocks from, I forget the name of the river, because there's a million of them in Jacksonville. This is the, this is the we're going to grow old in this house, house. This is the, our kids are going to grow up in this house, house. One of those houses. It was like the only neighborhood in Jacksonville with a hill, so I was ecstatic. And so that's September of 2013, concurrently as we're moving into our dream house, I'm still praying, God, what is this? By January of 2014, we're not even in the house for five months. We realized we were going to move to Connecticut. That was a fun conversation. My response is, this is going to happen, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. Melissa's response was, hell no. You're not moving a southern girl to the great white north, as far as she's concerned. But there's a willingness. And that's not a story about me or how great I am or Melissa's willingness as a wife to follow her husband on some, some crazy mission. That's just a story to let you know this is real. People actually do this stuff. And I don't know what your stories are. Maybe some of them I do. Keith's is similar. Gino's right hand for video production for the UConn women's basketball team. Left that to be in ministry full time. Who the hell does that? Right? That's a serious question. Like, who does that? But that's somebody living this resurrection life. Waking up, what's next, Papa? Like, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But even in the process, it's going to be so much better than anything I'm currently doing. Let me have some of that. And as Christians, that's where we live. Now, I called this sermon Dirty Hands. Have you ever seen the hands of somebody who works in a field? What are they? Dirty. Dirty! Have you ever seen a jeweler's hands? What are they? They're filthy. I have never seen dirtier hands than the hands of a jeweler because of what they work with, the materials they work with, the medium they work with, the intricacy of their designs. They have, they have jewels and pearls and bones and dirt and dust under their finger for days. See, as Christians, we have to have dirty hands because it's impossible to be a part, to be a part of the kingdom without working in it. It's impossible to be a part of the kingdom without advancing it. And by advancing it, you get your hands dirty because it requires you to do stuff. 
the merchant and the man in the field both had dirty hands. And because I'm not always a jerk, I will come back to the four points Brian had carrying through. The kingdom is. The kingdom is something that's coming in the future. It's the culmination of history. Here we have the treasure and the merchant. In one case, it's valuable and waiting to be discovered. In the other, it's seeking and acting. The kingdom of heaven is something that's here now, living in Jesus' followers. It's our knowing that there is something worth everything and our decision to do anything to be part of it all. That's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, is what it looks like whenever and wherever people follows God, follow God's will. To people who don't follow God's will or don't follow God, this looks insane. If our lives make sense to non-believers, there's something inherently wrong with our theology. We should live lives as Christians. Again, if you're not a Christian, this doesn't abide to you. But if you identify as a Christian, the things that you do in your life should cause non-believers to say, what the hell are you up to? Are you kidding? You're doing what? You gave away your car? Yeah, somebody else needed it. Things don't fit with the way the world works. But they always work out. And I couldn't put any other reason to it besides God. The kingdom of heaven is a way of referring to how the king operates. It's how and when God handles things. It's all in his timing by his hand. How many times was the treasure in the field passed over before it was discovered by the man? It's God's timing. That's God's hand working the soil. How many merchants passed by the pearl? And how long had the oyster laid untouched, allowing the pearl to form as it had? before it was harvested. That's God's time and how God works. If you take nothing else with you today, take this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for finding us. Lord, thank you your timing and by your hand coming to rescue us. Lord, I pray that in all things and in all ways, Lord, that you're recognized for who you are. Lord, the reality of, of what the kingdom is, Lord, I pray that would be ever present in the lives of those in this room and they would understand for the first time or maybe, Lord, just understand again that you are so much greater than anything we think we, think we have. Lord, I pray first that we recognize that whatever we have was given to us by you in the first place. And Lord, I pray that we could honestly and humbly give thanks for that. But upon that being done, Lord, I pray that we can look up and understand how big you are and how much we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.